what we were doing was going out and finding through great American ingenuity a mechanical solution to a problem. Instead of teaching, the best thing we can do to protect a soldier is teach him how to return accurate, discriminate fire. Hello again, everybody. Matt Robertson here, back with another episode of Everyday Marksman Radio, the podcast where we talk about tactical skills for an adventurous life. If you're new to the show, then welcome. We have a great one for you today. We're talking to Russ Miller, a triple distinguished shooter in precision rifle, NRA high power, and pistol shooting. He's also a former special operations officer for the United States Army and sniper instructor and just all-around super knowledgeable guy when it comes to all things with the art of marksmanship. Today's show notes can be found at everydaymarksman.co forward slash eight. That is the number eight. So everydaymarksman.co forward slash eight. There you're going to find some takeaways, some key links, things to talk about in the episode, as well as a transcript. Uh, while you're there, don't forget to leave a comment, join the conversation, let me know what you think. And if you want to support the show and the website, go ahead and hit that subscribe button at the bottom of the page. Uh, that way I'll send you some emails. That way you know what's going on around the website, all the new things we got going. On that note, for all the regular listeners, we have a new Marksman Challenge up as of last week. So this one's all about doing emergency shelters. If you've never done a poncho hooch before, this is your chance. Minimal shelter, get out in the wild, do it with some knots, do it with a poncho, some steaks, and just have some fun. Don't forget to post your pictures along the way so we can show it on the site and kind of show off what your rig looks like. If you're not familiar with Marksman Challenges, everybody, this is kind of our recurring monthly sequence or monthly challenges where you can go out and do the things that we talk about on the show, whether it's marksmanship or fitness-related or survival skills. All right, these are all just opportunities to go out and take action. And as always, if you're pressed for time, go ahead and jump to the last 15 minutes or so. You'll get my key takeaways from the entire interview. Though I do encourage you to listen to the entire thing because that's where all the fun stories happen, right? So, uh, like I said, have some fun. Let's get to it. Our guest today has over 30 years of military and competition experience. He's a triple distinguished shooter in rifle, pistol, and NRA action pistol. He's also an NRA long-range high master competitor. He's been a coach and commander of multiple military marksmanship units, including the National Guard, Special Forces Weapons Sergeant Course, and the West Point Pistol Team. I'd like to welcome Russ Miller. Russ, welcome to the show. Hey, nice to talk to you, Matt. Oh, absolutely. I'm glad we got to connect. All right, so um, I'm going to start off. Uh, I got a little bit of your background, but one of the most interesting things you said to me was that you didn't learn how to shoot in the military. You learned through competition. So I want to start there. Tell me a little bit about that. The military, and I, I should speak more for the Army than anybody else, it qualifies people. That's all it does. I was in an infantry unit, a highly deployable infantry unit. We went to the range once in the spring, once in the fall. The first thing I heard when I got off the trucks is, okay, everybody hurry up because we want to get home tonight. And people were put on the range until they qualified. There was no training. There was a cursory, what they would call basic rifle marksmanship lecture 
in the barracks somewhere in a classroom. And then we were off to the range. You got nine rounds to zero. If you were having problems, you got nine more rounds to zero. And then it was off to the qualification range. And like John Simpson said in your interview about qualification versus training, that's not training. Uh, and um, this went on for three years in in the infantry for me. When I was at the infantry school at basic, they took us out to um, the range. I'm an infantryman at the infantry school. Think about this. <clears throat> they spent a half a morning waiting for trucks to pick us up to move us two miles to a pistol range. We... We, we went there, we filed by and got our ammo, then we filed by and got our magazines because you can't get them at the same time for some reason. And then we had, were told to load the magazine, then load the gun, and we fired five rounds at an empty berm. You mean there wasn't even a target? There was no target. Huh. And then we waited another hour for the buses to come back and move us two miles back to where we started. So where in that four years did I have any marksmanship training? That's what I'm talking about. Okay. You know, it's funny because I mean, me being from the air force, uh, I remember when I got qualified on the M nine and it was a very similar experience. I showed up to the, the CATAM range or for the non-military folks, that means combat arms training and marksmanship or something like that. I, Memory is fuzzy, but remember we showed up and we got like a, a 30 minute, here's how you handle a pistol safely, yeah, disassemble it, inspect it. And mine had a cracked slide. I remember bringing that up to attention and then off to the range where we fired 36 shots and we were done. There was no marks and sh- there was no instruction. There was no, here's how you handle this, how you have a correct grip. It was just, okay, you shot. Good job. I, I had the privilege of doing an annual qualification with the Marine Corps uh, at about the same time. And that was a whole different experience. Um, I I can't speak to the Marine Corps now. I've heard some not so good things about where Marine Corps marksmanship training is going, and that's a shame. Um, But yeah, there is, I I can't remember. And that that goes for special forces too. Um, So. Yeah, that, that's why I put on whenever I talk my resume or I'm standing in front of a group. I wasn't properly trained, so I had to go out and find it. And that was, well, and I think in your interview with John Simpson, he mentioned going down to the Smith and Wesson Academy, I believe. Mm-hmm. And it changed his whole outlook on marksmanship training. And that's basically what's happened to me. You know, I thought I could shoot because I was a big, bad infantryman or a big, bad green beret. And then all of a sudden I went to a competition and my ego wasn't bruised or damaged. It was sunk. Hmm. And then I realized that I need to learn from these guys. You know, that reminds me of a story of uh, Carlos Hathcock, the Vietnam sniper. And he, I think it was, he said something along the lines of he didn't learn how to read the wind in the military, he learned it from competition. Yes. I'll tell you a quick little sniper story. I walked in to my unit that my company that owned the snipers in my infantry battalion. 
And I was at that time as a, a lieutenant, I was in charge of the cooks, the motor pool, the staff, the supply room, the arms room, and all the rolling stock, meaning the trucks and Humvees and the mobile kitchens and all that. I was brought into my company commander's office and told, I'm now in charge of the snipers. Sir, that's not my job description. The battalion commander doesn't want it where it's supposed to be. He's putting it under you. You're a shooter. Have at it. We got 60 rounds a quarter to take soldiers out to train them and qualify them. 60 rounds a quarter. That's not enough for even one practice session. And these soldiers have to learn how to call wind competently out to 800 yards. That takes range time. That takes ammo. That takes you making mistake with that ammo. That takes ammunition for you to learn the correction and then make other mistakes at other yard lines. That's why there was no marksmanship training in the military. But when you're in, when you're competing, you shoot 60 rounds in a couple hours in a day long match. Mm-hmm. And you learn so much from that. And as well as watching other people and listening to other people talk and, and coach you. So yes, that's, that's, I, I totally agree with, uh, Hathcock on that. You know, he, that's the way it is. <laughs> yeah. You need the experience. Yeah. I mean, there's the, like, I, I think I told you when we talked the other day, I have a wind calling formula. It's range time plus ammunition plus condi- conditions. That's, that's the range formula. You need range time. You need plenty of ammo to make mistakes and make good calls. And you need the conditions that blow that bullet all over the place. You need overcast. You need cold. You need hot. You need all those things repetitively. So when you get behind the rifle, you can't, you don't have time to look at a data book. It is intuitive and 60 rounds a quarter per soldier doesn't get that done. So, so you're telling me that my, my desire to buy a $400 wind meter that gives me my ballistic formula is not going to work out for me. I would say that that is a training aid that will get you down a road uh, or start you down a road, but you've got to look at that target. You've got to look at the wind at your position, in between your position and the target, and what it's doing at the target, and come up with a firing solution. And if you don't do that instantaneously, in a tactical situation, the target will disappear. Believe it or not, the targets are not big white silhouettes standing in the open waiting for them to shoot you. They actually hide. And in some cases, they actually shoot back at you. And they're frequently painted green. And they don't want to be shot. <laughs> and they, they generally don't want to be shot, kind of like you. And in competition, in certain competitions, that target comes up out of the pits for only 45 seconds. 
If you're playing around with a wind meter, you've probably taken yourself out of your position. Then you've got to resettle yourself into that position. And then you've got to take a shot before it goes down. And nobody's counting that those seconds off for you. So that target's got to come up. You've got to make some quick observations. You've got to put them into the calculator between your ears and fire the shot. Period. A lot of the ballistic calculators are used in competitions where there's a prep time. So you get to check the conditions, see the prevailing conditions, um, and then you can use that when you go up to the firing line under a time constraint and use it as part of your formula. But as a sniper, you're going to come into a final firing position, sneak to it, probably through heavy undergrowth, maybe in a building, where you're not going to get to see all the range flags and all the trees moving back and forth and the mirage across the big white number boards down by the pits in competition. You're going to have this little tunnel in which you're observing the target and you're going to get maybe a few climate condition indicators. And your wind meter deep in a sniper hide isn't going to do much for you. They're good training aids. So you know what, uh, when you, a technique to use is you look at the wind by your position and make a wind call. I think it's five miles an hour. Hold the wind meter up. Okay. It says seven or eight miles an hour. Make a mental note of that. Make a physical note of that. Um, see what the trees are doing around your position. See what the flags are doing around your shooting position. But that's how you build that into, that's how you use that tool to build your intuitive wind calling or your, what I call your firing solution. Mm-hmm. So, okay. So I actually want to dig into this a little bit more because that's a really interesting point that I don't think a lot of people have talked about. So, you know, I kind of want to talk about this relationship between competition shooting and the air quoting real world shooting, because I, I think a lot of people will tell say something like, well, I don't need to learn how to do that. That's, that's a gaming technique. And then they kind of ignore competition altogether. Um, at, the, at the same time, I see the other side of it where a lot of competitors probably eschew good tactics because it helps them in a game. So kind of where do you see this balance? Um, big picture Competition brings stress. The minute that buzzer goes off, and if you're in a particular discipline where everybody's watching you, that brings a lot of stress. You need that for combat. You need to be able to operate under pressure. Now, that sort of pressure isn't the sort of pressure you get when the ramp goes down on the landing craft and the German machine gun in the bunker opens up on you, but we can't do that. And we can't shoot at you for real. So the next best thing is getting into high pressure situations and competition does that. So that's the big picture of competition and how you need to use it. You will get complaints that, oh, it's not realistic, it's not tactical, it's this. 
I have been to many a military sniper match. And in that military sniper match, there are frequently snipers that have a NRA long-range or high-power rifle background. Their background primarily is competition. And then you get the pure snipers. And almost every match I've been to, when there are high-power shooters and then pure snipers in that sniper competition, the high-power shooters will win. Mm -hmm. Because every sniper match, no matter how many different physical things you have to do, their road marches, land navigation, a sniper match is primarily a shooting match. And those high-power shooters aren't just hitting the E-type silhouette every time. They're hitting dead center in that E-type silhouette. Okay. And so that's that's where the competition comes in. What you need to do is, as a, as a tactical trainer, since I'm straddling that world, what I endeavor to do is, is put a fine filter between the competition and the tactical. And I take a good hard look at every competition technique and see whether it can be applied or modified to apply. And that's the, that is the procedure you need to use to see whether a competition or a competition technique or a competition procedure will assist you in your tactical deployment and your your shot. So, do you have an example of what that might look like? Like, what's what's a good and a bad example of, of being? Bad? Okay, here's here's a good example. Um, in high power rifle competition, I have equipment that is very similar to my sniper equipment, and really the only difference is one's painted green and the others painted frequently a lot of bright colors. When I come into my firing point on the competition line, I go through the same procedure step-by-step in setting up my equipment that I do in my final firing position as a sniper. I I have a carrying bag or a rucksack. That goes in the same place. The rifle gets laid down initially in the same place. If I have a spotting device like a scope, a spotting scope or binoculars, they get set down in the same place, in the same chronological order. So that's where competition training is very, the, the routine you have in competition training, you should do in your, in your tactical training. Because accuracy is a product of uniformity. Watch, watch somebody, watch the same player at the free free throw line in basketball, or the same baseball player come to the plate. He he has a certain routine that he follows religiously, because accuracy is a product of, of uniformity in everything you do prior to the shot, during the preparation for the shot, and the shot and the follow through. Now, a bad, um, a bad example of, of not filtering through competition techniques properly is the M1907 sling. If you're not 
familiar with it. It is the sling with two long rows of holes, basically along the entire length with two hooks, and you can adjust it. You don't have time. You don't have a three-minute prep period in most sniping cases to adjust that sling exactly the way you want it. And if you don't get it right the first time, you've got to come out of it. And it takes eight hands to do at least. And that is a case where somebody didn't look at this and say, this is not suitable for sniping because we're shooting at fleeting targets that are, that are shooting back at us. And I don't have a three-minute prep period to do that in combat. Uh, John Simpson talked about it. We get gear crazy. And and we're looking for the next miracle weapon that's going to win the war. And the next miracle weapon that's going to win the war is a, a man in uniform, man or woman in uniform, with good, hard, proper training. Um, and I'll give you a, a side example because it, it also straddles that high power um, uh, tactical side. I had a friend of mine in the National Guard, very fine high power shooter. He was on the all guard uh, rifle team. He went to a sniper match. He's a he was a fifty five or six year old man. Went to a sniper match. Had been shooting high power his whole life. He went with a Winchester Model seventy with a unertal scope on it. And for, for your listeners that don't know where that comes from, that was our sniping rifle in World War II, Korea, and Vietnam, or one of, one of the ones in Vietnam. And all it was was a target rifle with a target scope on it. Here he comes and shoots in this match, and he places fourth with a gun that is arguably 60, 70, 80 years old with a good scope, but an antiquated scope. And he's placing fourth against 25-year-olds with high-dollar sniper equipment. And one of the reasons was he was such a good high-power shooter his equipment didn't matter. And guess what else? He, in addition to his 50, 60, 70-year-old rifle, he was shooting match M1 ball or M1 match ammo, 30 caliber, meaning what most listeners would know as 30-odd six. Mm-hmm. So I, I, I hope that illustrates... Uh, a little bit of the competition, that example illustrates how important competition is and how unimportant equipment is. You know, that reminds me of a quote, uh, Field Marshal Montgomery, who said, uh, man is still the first weapon of war. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, and I alluded to this in the beginning when we started talking about the lack of training in in the milit in the at least in the U.S. Army infantry. I should be more specific. Um, when I got to Somalia, 
Uh, I got there right after the big battle of Bacara market, which everybody knows is Black Hawk down. And the army, which is really good at doing surveys and finding out what went wrong, found out that we had a lot of extremity injuries. So two or three months after we got there, we got a prototype of an armored Kevlar armored suit. It was the most ridiculous thing thought of. We're in the Middle East. We're in the desert. We actually tried it out with a squad. And they did their three to five second rushes. And I was there to witness this. And I cracked up laughing because after about a hundred meter tactical movement, they were smoked. And they also couldn't shoot their weapons. What we were doing was going out and finding, through great American ingenuity, a mechanical solution to a problem. Instead of teaching, the best thing we can do to protect a soldier is teach him how to return accurate, discriminate fire. And we don't do that. These soldiers couldn't mount their rifles and good, get a good stock weld on their rifles because of the bulk of all this stuff. They even had a Kevlar apron that hung down from the back of and sides of our helmet. <laughs> yeah. How, how, I mean, they were smoked. They needed a serious refueling of water after that hundred meter movement. So in addition to not being able to shoulder their weapon properly to take a good shot, now they're smoked and they have to take a good shot at a fleeting target with obscuration on the battlefield in one to three seconds. <laughs> huh. That's a that's a that's a difficult task to do. Yes. So we we and and I'll give you another example. They sent over armored Humvees where they just slapped on armor to a Humvee and told us to test them, because as you saw in the movie, all the vehicles in Black Hawk Down were soft skinned. Well, let's go through them. They go in one side, go out the other, and they take a lot of flesh with them. Well, they just bolted on the armor. They, they, they put thick plexiglass everywhere, and there were no air conditioners. The minute we went off-road, they got stuck because the Humvee was designed around a certain weight to be a high-mobility, multi-purpose wheeled vehicle. <laughs> Once you turn it into a light tank, it can't do that. <laughs> it's just that simple. So it's using the right tool for the right job at the right time. Exactly. And if we had taught them to shoot from vehicles, moving vehicles accurately, maybe we don't need to bolt on the armor. Or at least not in the thicknesses and configuration they had. So that reminds me of another question then. Uh, something that I've kind of gone on off talking with other people about is uh, you mentioned how 
the military, particularly the army, has kind of reduced its investment in marksmanship training. And there's kind of a conversation going on among my readers in particular who say something along the lines of every time they introduce a new gizmo, like a new red dot site or something like that, then there's a, what should be make marksmanship easier ends up being net no change because they de-invest in practice and, and training. Well, let me disabuse you of something. There is no marksmanship training in the U.S. Army <laughs> that I've seen in 26 and a half years. There, there, there's, I mean, that's one thing we have to establish. There is no marksmanship training. There is cursory training to get us through qualification. Okay. And now they're doing a lot of standing CQB shooting. Um, and I've, I've heard they've changed the, the qualification and it's supposed to be more realistic. But if you go back to the field manual that guided my M16 training, it was a very good manual that had a lot of realistic shooting and had a difference, different iterations that you were supposed to go through before you got qualification. But what we did was we went zeroed and then we went to qualification. No doubt this, this new military marksmanship manual is, is probably a great piece of work, but commanders are graded on qualification. And commanders, a lot of people, unless you've got a great command climate that wants to go out and do realistic training, they want to get out there and get everybody qualified expert and get them back. Mm. And, and I, you know, that's what I joined the army for. Not to paint rocks and edge grass. <laughs> <laughs> I joined to shoot and maneuver and communicate and call in airstrikes and ride on the back of tanks. And it, was not happening <laughs> while I was in and, and, uh, that's, I would still submit to you that today that the M16 manual that I grew up with is an excellent training manual to get your soldiers, soldiers, sail, sailors, airmen, Marines, and coast guardsmen and cops to a proficient level. Obviously, special operations units gets more ammo, more focus on it, but it's still not as much as it should be. Okay. Um, and and I can't speak directly to the services, the other services, but you mentioned your complaints about your marksmanship training in the Air Force. I hear that all the time across most services, and I'm still very tight with a lot of, you know, active duty service people. So, okay. So I'm going to come back to something you said earlier. You were talking about your the consistent process, that accuracy is a product of uniformity. And you were talking about kind of the, the same sequence you follow for laying out your gear, everything up to the shot. And that's not the first time I've come across that before. I think I reviewed a book called uh, With Winning in Mind by Lanny Basham. And he talks yes. about uh, the mental program. And it's a very similar concept to that, where there's always this, you do the exact same sequence up to that shot break. Is that kind of what you're talking about something does that sound about right i learned that yes it, it, it is right i learned that by a basketball coach named tom salino he taught me he spent about five weeks getting a good efficient foul shot procedure 
down with me. I was shooting 11% from the foul line my freshman year. My senior year, I was shooting 79% from the foul line. And I haven't played basketball in 20 years, but if you hand me a ball and go up and say, go up to the, the, the foul line and take a shot, and you look at a video of me from 1985 or six when I was in high school, they will be precisely the same procedures. Precisely. And he beat into me that you can't just rent, come up there and randomly do a procedure each and every shot. It has to be the same exact procedure, both the same mental and physical procedures. And they need to be done in the same order. That's where I got that from. My first marksmanship experience, my first marksmanship in training, and in, honestly, some of my best marksmanship uh, training came from Tom, Coach Tom Felino of the Warwick Valley High School basketball team. And he taught me how to shoot. Now, in a high-pressure situation, you have to abbreviate that. But the only way you can abbreviate that effectively is when you get to the point of it being intuitive in the step-by-step slow process. You've got to walk, and you've got to walk completely before you can be Michael Jordan and take... You know, let me go back. Um, You read Larry Bird's book, and I read it a long time ago, but he practiced the basics. He would shoot 500 shots a day at at a basketball hoop outside of practice. And he talked about how he, 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 and I saw this also in an interview. I I may have seen it in the interview versus the book. It's been so long since I read the book. But all he did was practice the basics. And, and over that 500 round or those 500 shots, he would do slow fire and then he would do rapid fire. And the slow fire continues to instill the basics step by step. And the rapid fire compresses them and abbreviates them. And you can't do the abbreviation unless you master the basics. So it reminds me of something uh, I, I see in weightlifting all the time too. Um, not quite one-to-one example here, but you know they say if you do random training, you get random results versus if you focus on what you're trying to do and repeat that. That's that's how you get where you're going. Exactly. Exactly. If you go, I tell snipers, if you don't want to get involved in high-power rifle shooting, NRA, civilian marksmanship program, high-power rifle shooting, go to a match, identify who the stud shooters are, and then watch, film them, take notes, watch their pre-shot, their shot, and their follow-through uh, follow procedures. Watch how they approach the firing line. Watch every little thing. Take that was probably one of the biggest lessons I learned getting into competition. Everything is deliberately done, nothing is left to random luck. And there is luck, you know, there's a certain amount of luck when you send a projectile out of a barrel at 2,800 feet per second. 
there's a certain amount of luck because Mother Nature could intervene and there could be a gust of wind and all that. But by reducing the variables, you are reducing the power that luck has in hitting something. And you reduce those variables in part by having the same routine. It's that simple. So I want to kind of then talk more about competition. So, um, you know, one of the battles I think a lot of people who do competition face, especially in the firearms community, is that nobody wants to get involved. Uh, they and if you go around asking people why don't you compete, you get kind of a mix of answers from people who will say that, oh, well, that's not realistic. That doesn't matter. Uh, and some people say they don't want to pay for it or it's too far to go. But a lot of people, I think, are are kind of scared. They are scared because they load their guns with ego and not ammo. Huh. You understand what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. They're kind of getting personally, like, they don't want to put themselves on the line because they don't want to be shown that they, they might be wrong. You grab your average SS guy. He became SS because he was a super soldier to begin with. And a lot of people probably told him when he before he joined SS that he was a super soldier. Then he gets to SS, and all we do is tell ourselves that we're super soldiers and we're great. And compared to the rest of the Army, we're great at a lot of things. But then you take him to a competition, and the 60-year-old guy with a massive beer gut smokes him in the competition his ego's bruised. <laughs> his ego's bruised. You've got to set your ego aside and realize that everybody there that's shooting well was once you. There's no harm. There's no foul in it. And you'll find that most of the shooters there will give you more advice and training than you'll get in your whole career in the army in just one day long match. And when they find out you're uniformed, you get even more assistance and a help and you get a lot of friendships and they all want to see you do well, especially as a uniformed serviceman or a cop. But a lot of people don't want to do that. Uh, I frequently invited my fellow special operators to matches and, you know, about a quarter to maybe a third that I invited would come. And then they got, they got their ass handed to them by the old geezer, the gray hair, the, the old, the old 65 year old. And, you know, next time I said, hey, there's a match this weekend, you know, there were all sorts of excuses why he couldn't do it. And, you know, eventually I frequently said, it's like your ego's bruised and you haven't recovered. Oh, no, that's not me. <laughs> I, I really need to, to mow the lawn this weekend. It's very important or I need to wash the car. It's like, OK, you know, um, thanks for coming. Thanks for coming to the competition you did. If you ever want to join me, feel free. It, it, a lot of it is ego. A lot of it is ego. And not just with the servicemen. Uh, you know, there's other people that have have the same ego problems. I, do, and, I definitely think there's a lot of machoism that goes around in, in our community. Oh, where, where it's just 
you oh well, I I saw this in a movie once. I know what I'm doing, and everybody just assumes they're way better than they are. I, I know so many of these snipers that took these you know two thousand mile shots that you see in all the gun magazines. I haven't met one of them that didn't say they walked their rounds into the target. Mm-hmm. You read these gun magazines and they have pictures of these guys flexing, looking tough and all that. And the culture builds up the ego thing. Well, you get these, these snipers one-on-one and they'll be the first people to tell you that I didn't hit that guy at 2,500 meters with one shot. I watched the impact of the rounds and like a machine gun, I just walked the rounds in until I hit him. But we have to build up this, this macho culture that this guy who has little or no training speak of laid down after he humped up a, a mountain at 12,000 feet where the air's thin and he just plopped down and shot a guy 1,800 meters on the other ridge at 12,000 feet. It didn't happen. <laughs> it didn't happen one round, okay? That guy is. That guy has probably, in some cases, 30-mile-an-hour winds. When was the last time he trained in 30-mile-an-hour winds? It's just, it's a bit, and you know, I was just looking at a magazine today. Every picture of a man is basically him with his war face on, you know, holding onto his gun, flexing his muscles in a tight shirt. <laughs> it's all ego, you know? That yeah, kind of reminds me of, uh, and something I feel like people kind of forget is it's supposed to be fun. Like, have fun with it. Yeah. Yeah. Have fun with it. If you're not having fun, you're not going to come back to it. Set your ego aside. Look. There, there are plenty of matches where I shot, especially in pistol matches, where almost every no-shoot target, which designates an innocent civilian, had a hole in it from my gun. There were almost more holes in them than there were in the bad guys. And you just shrug it off. Everybody makes fun of you. Have a thick skin. Make fun of yourself. Reload your magazines and get ready for the next stage of fire. Mm-hmm. Because you know what? Every grandmaster, every champion has done the same thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It actually leads me to, a, to kind of the next point here is, you know, for someone who does want to get involved, let's say we, we get past our egos and we say, all right, I'm going to show up and we're going to see what happens. I'm going to have fun. I'm going to learn. But, you know, if I'm trying to really have that focused training program to get from where I am now, let's say like, you know, couch to 5k, I'm, I'm couch to high power or a couch to action shooting. You know, what does that kind of progression look like? What, what, what would you suggest to somebody who wants to get involved, but doesn't know where to start? The, the first thing to do is to go to a match and just observe and see whether it's the discipline, the shooting discipline you want to do. Then find the match director. During a match, the match director will be busy. But after the match, and there are breaks for lunch frequently, go up and introduce yourself and say, I'm looking to get into this. I know nothing about it. 
could you help me sometime after the match? Could I call you? Or is there, do you have an instructor here? Do you have anybody that helps people like this? You will get so much help that way. It, it is, it, you'll, you'll get too many offers for help, actually. You won't be able to access them all. Then all your different shooting organizations and clubs have clinics, introductory, introductory clinics in which you can get trained from more experienced people. If you're looking to, to get into high, the high power rifle disciplines, the small bore disciplines, the 22 caliber disciplines, the precision pistol disciplines, which again is bullseye shooting, the civilian marksmanship program has so many training venues you won't you won't have enough time to do them all the nra also has the same training the same similar training venues if you go to the national matches that are run by the nra and the civilian marksmanship program before those national matches they will have clinics pistol clinics and rifle clinics and you will have the army marksmanship unit the marine corps rifle team you will have all the military units there helping you to learn about that particular discipline and what better instructors could you possibly have it's that simple the hard part is is when you begin to choose equipment that will be bewildering initially but again the best thing to do there is get the simplest piece of equipment learn the techniques don't worry about how good or bad the equipment is. The, the equipment has to be good in the sense that it has to function reliably don't think that you need to get the best most accurate super duper turbocharged gun you don't it's funny that's exactly what i was about to say is and just get start with something basic and, and go with it i think I, i'm guilty of this I know I've got a 308 bolt action I started building up for PRS competition a while ago. And when I moved to a state that that wasn't even an option, I kind of let it fall, but I'm kind of interested again. I'm like, oh, well, and I think maybe I've got a thousand rounds through the barrel and it's 308 heavy, heavy barrel. But I'm like, maybe I should rechamber it to 6.5 Creed more. And in the back of my mind, I'm like, burn out the barrel 308 first. <laughs> Just shoot it till it's burned out. Burn the barrel out and get the procedures down. Get the techniques down master those techniques first and the 308 is a good accurate fairly cheap round as compared to all these new new popular rounds like 65 creed more 6 creed more 6 millimeter creed more or you know what 667 lapua or or whatever the new hot cartridge is um and they're also you know in PRS there is a shooting class for 308 alone. So you will compete on a level playing field with other 308 rifles. And, you know, that's the best thing to do. Wear that barrel out. <laughs> Wear that barrel out. And, and then look to the other. And, you know, John Simpson in his interview, you asked him about the hot cartridges. And he immediately went back to... Master the basics, get good training. Don't worry about the equipment. So uh, just one more question on that then, just from a, a map standpoint, just for gear, because the rifle 
and safety equipment obviously is important. Um, but is there anything else you think someone should, at least they don't need need to have it up front, but they should consider like, do you, is a shooting mat needed some at some point or a bipod? Well, you know, if you're shooting pistol, you don't need a shooting mat unless you're in action pistol where you spend a lot of time prone. It depends on your discipline. But here's the one, here are the two things you need across all disciplines. You will need a maintenance log in which you track your rounds. You need a, a book in which you count your rounds and you keep track of ammunition by manufacturer and lot number. So you know what manufacturer works in your gun and doesn't. And you, you can see whether a lot of ammo is giving you problems. Um, and that's uh, every pistol I have has a maintenance log. Every rifle I have has a maintenance log. And I know down to the exact number how many rounds is through my rifle or through my pistol. Period. The other thing that every discipline needs is a diary. In that diary, you write down what your plan is for the day. And yes, you have to go to the range with a plan or you're just wearing out barrels. But we just talked about a deliberate plan executed deliberately. Um, and then you need to write down things as you observe them, either during the practice or after the practice. It's absolutely essential because, and in some cases, there's philosophies in which you say you go back and look at that diary and ingrain the lessons and check to see whether you're meeting the lessons learned. But there's also a school of thought that says just the act of writing it down helps teach you. Figure out which one works for you. I frequently can learn the lesson and move on, but sometimes I go back to my diary um, and look back at some of my notes. But those are the two general, two pieces of equipment I would have for any discipline, and I do have for every every discipline. I've shot rifle, I've shot pistol, um, even my shotguns, which are just defensive weapons. They have a round count, period. <laughs> they have a round count book that is a that and that round count book is a part of the rifle or the pistol or the firearm. When I go to my gunsmith, he gets handed my maintenance log. Gunsmiths are involved in maintenance. He needs that maintenance log. And it goes into my soft case, it goes into my hard case with the gun. And then when my gun goes into the safe, it is set down right next to that rifle. When that rifle comes out, the maintenance log comes out. It's that simple. So actually, it's going to follow. That leads into, it's, it's a perfect segue to kind of the first audience question that I've got. Because I let people know who I, I was going to be talking to you. And they let me know some of the things they were interested in. And you actually alluded to this earlier. And I think it relates to the diary. But a data book. Um, you know, people talk about data books all the time, but how is that related? And what do you, what do you think people should know about that? A, a data book is more a picture representation of, of your rifle shooting as you do it. 
and it it shows you what firing solutions work. It shows you what conditions affect you in a different way. Like when we were shooting iron sights in rifle competition, the angle of the sun bouncing off that front sight is very important. Light there, there's a saying: lights up, sights up; lights down, sights down, because of the the optical illusion sun plays on your front sight. That has to be recorded, so you can refer to it at other matches or in other firing, in other tactical, in in terms of sniping, in a in a tactical situation. And it also begins to ingrain it into an intuitive thing. Um, uh, I'll give you a, I'll give you an example. I was on the firing line with shooting at a thousand yards in an F class match. My one, I think one of my first F class matches, I had all my data books and all my data cards, my range cards, all that stuff that would somehow get me an X. And my score was a gentleman named Ed Huskins, who was an instructor at the Special Forces Sniper course in the 80s, 90s, and early 2000s, after he retired from a career as a Special Forces soldier. Um, And he was a competition shooter. He looked down and said, what is all that crap by by your side? I said, well, that's my firing solutions and my data card. And he looked up at a thousand yards at the target and said, put four and a half minutes left and shoot the gun. So I put four and a half minutes left and I shot the gun and I got an X. Then the next one, I got a tight 10, then another X and another X and a tight 10. And then I finally went into the nine range. He knew how to do that without a data book because he had spent years and years using a data book to the point where he knew what wind call to make. The data book starts you down a journey of building up an encyclopedia of experience and knowledge for the time when you don't need it. And that's where a data book comes in. Now, a data book is different than a diary. The data book, you're putting your minutes of angle left, your minutes of angle right. You're putting the conditions. You're plotting. You're you're putting your call on a, a call chart. Then you're plotting your actual shot on the plot target. Um, and you may make some cursory notes. You'll you'll note the temperature. You'll note the angle of the sun, uh, you'll note the lot of your ammunition. You may even note which gun you're shooting. I always put the serial number of my gun or I put, I put the buttstock number of the gun. I, I put buttstock numbers on all my guns um, because I have multiple copies of each. And that helps you. That helps you. The data book helps you with more with the science portion of shooting. Shooting to me is both an art and a science. And the data book is more science because it's, it's, it's true data. The diary is your observations 
about everything going on, about how you feel. I ate too much this morning. My stomach's growling. It's affecting my position. I have a cramp in my arm. I can't get into a good position. The rifle seems to be staying hot when it should be cooling. Those are the things that you put in the diary. And then at the end, you put in a plan to address those issues. So that's the difference in the diary. And the reason I just mentioned diary and maintenance log, because some sports don't have a data book. Uh, pistol, generally, you don't have a data book. You may if you're shooting precision. But if you're shooting practical, there's no data book involved in that, just the diary and maybe your maintenance log. But in precision shooting, precision rifle shooting, or at least during the, your practices, you will have a data book with you as well as when you're practicing sniping. And that actually gives you the next question on this from another reader um, related to that one because you talked about your, your first F-class experience. Um, you know, Earlier in this conversation, I, I, I kind of joked about buying a wind meter because I don't have one. Um, but I was always interested in it. But And you talked about using your experience as that. So do you have any kind of starting points for people to want to learn how do they read the wind better? One of the first drills that a gentleman named Middleton Tompkins does with us at his long-range clinic, Middleton Tompkins is arguably one of the finest rifle shooters this country has produced. And one of the first drills Middleton Tompkins does is he has a shoot at the target and it gets plotted and he leaves the plot in. Then he waits for a strong wind and then he tells us to take a shot and he tells us not to touch our sights. He wants us to see how far that bullet will be pushed by the wind. And he has us do that in different wind conditions, strong, medium, and weak wind conditions. So we see how much our bullet is being pushed. I would argue that is more valuable than having a wind, a weather station, a manned weather station by your firing point. That is much more important than uh, a wind meter. Because a wind meter only reads your wind at your position. Some bullets you shoot go way up in the air. You shoot a 155-grain bullet at 1,000 yards, you are way up in the air. And when you're way up in the air, you can't see anything. You don't have a mirage. You don't have a wind flag. You don't have trees. So how is that wind meter going to help you 30 or 40 feet up in the air? Uh, another thing I did in my sniper training is I had a wind meter and I had somebody go down to certain yard lines. I would have them walk down and I'd be on a radio and say, stop. And then I'd give everybody about 10 seconds to read the wind at that location. And then I'd have them all say it out loud. And then I'd have him read over the radio what the wind call was. That's where a wind meter, I believe, has more value. When it is training you, when it is confirming or denying your wind calls in training. 
So there's no no substitute for doing the work. There's no substitute for doing the work. It is not if you're if you if you're using a wind meter as a crutch during a competition or a sniping scenario. That's just what it is. It's a crutch. It's not a tool that is helping you move forward. It's just like a, a um, speaking of crutches, a bipod on a sniper rifle is is used as a crutch versus a tool made for very specific applications. Everybody tries to do everything and depend on that bipod, and that bipod is a tool for specific situations not an end-all be-all for every firing solution you have. All right, Russ, I only have one more question if you have the time. I know we're kind of running a little over. Yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah, so this is please. one I ask to everybody. And you can take a moment to think about it. Um, this is not meant to be negative, though it might come across that way. But what is one thing that you wish shooters would stop doing right now? It's going to be, I think John said this, stop chasing the latest equipment fad. Put a target up on your garage wall and dry fire. Dry fire, if you, all you have is a Kentucky or Pennsylvania long rifle, and that's the only thing you can afford, dry fire. If you have a World War II Garand, and that's all you have, and you're going to a match where everybody's shooting their super-duper whatever, dry fire. Stop chasing the equipment arms race. That's because that's all it is. That's all it is. And and to quote, what was John's quote, John Simpson's quote? Uh, a man training with a stick is more dangerous than a man playing with a sword. Yep, it was, uh, I think it was the man who trains with a stick will defeat the man who plays with a sword. Uh, there you go. I, I, I have my brain is filled with John Simpson sayings and I can't keep them all straight. <laughs> so, but yeah, that, that, that's, it, it is there. There was also a quote by some famous tactician or general. Um, the, 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 the importance of the man to the sword is 10 to one or something like that. I have to look that one up. Um, yeah, I, and it's I'm 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 really bastardizing. John will know the quote <laughs> verbatim because he he knows that stuff verbatim. I I'm, I I just don't have the brain power for all that, but I I understand the lesson okay. from it. All right, Russ. Um, so. well, on that note, uh, I always like to ask: Is there any any books or references you'd like to point my audience to to learn more about you or anything we've talked about today? Buy yourself an NRA, NRA firearms source book. It is all the terms and definitions related to shooting, some of the history. It is a great resource for all the details. If you're going to get into this game, you need to have a common language and you need to know what people are talking about. This answers it definitively. The other thing I would get, and I tell snipers to get this, is comp competition shooting 
by a Russian coach named A.A. Yuryev. And that's um, Y-U-R apostrophe Y-E-V, A.A. Yuryev, competition shooting. Uh, some of it's a little dated and some of it has uh, been modified, but it goes through the science of shooting and the science of getting into a position. It has lots of pictures of world-class shooters from around the world in the 50s and 60s. It has excellent, excellent anatomical depictions of each shooting position. And it should be read, and I've read it three times. It discusses the ligaments in your arm and how they affect your shooting. And while there's some things that need to be updated about it, it's still a book that I would say is 95% accurate to this day. And I, you know, those, those are not super duper. This is how you be a sniper book, but these are gun. These are uh, books that transcend all shooting, and will set you down, set, send you down the right path. I will definitely make sure to stick those in my show notes here, so people can find them. Yes, uh, competition, sh- competitive shooting by A. A. Yuryev is out of print, so it's uh, there may be a little sticker shock when you see it, <laughs> but it it okay. is well worth it. It is well worth it. Okay. Well, Russ, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. I really appreciate you taking the time. All right, guys, let's talk about my takeaways from this interview. There was a lot of information here, and there was a lot to keep up with. And if you're anything like me, you were scribbling notes like mad trying to get everything written down. So I made it easy for you. Go ahead and check out the show notes, everydaymarksman.co forward slash number eight forward slash eight and you can find my notes the transcript other things we talked about today as well as some links that we talked about in the episode to some books and resources that are out there all right so i've got 10 main points that i want to get across in this interview so let's go ahead and go through them one at a time so let's talk about our first takeaway from this right off the bat russ said that marksmanship training in the army is not what everybody seems to think it is the truth is It's a government organization, just like police and any other unit where, you know, there's budgets to be contending with and there's time and there's pressures and there's other things going on that basically means that you don't get all the amount of practice that you probably should get. And the expectation is that you're just going to figure it out. And sometimes people do, sometimes people don't. Uh, People may get into private competitions like I did and Russ did and, and learn that way. Some people may work their way into more advanced units where they get to do a lot more of this. Uh, but the reality is it's not that common to have somebody who re- gets really good at shooting. And one of my favorite stories out of this one was also the his friend who's a national high-power shooter who went to a sniper competition and placed fourth while using a Winchester Model 70 and inertial scope. I mean, we're talking old-school World War II, Korea, Vietnam era equipment, and they're going up against modern-day military snipers stacked with the most expensive gear that government money could buy, and the dude placed fourth. What that tells me and reminds me is that the important part of this is not your gear. 
It's the know-how that you have the experience to read those wind calls, know your rifle, know how it's going to perform, and use your gear to the best of its ability. It comes back to what Jeff Cooper once said in The Art of the Rifle, which is a good shooter can shoot up to the level of their rifle. And I would wager that most people today can't do that. Another key factor that I thought was really, really important in this conversation was talking about the importance of pressure. Now, in the military training that I went through, just like many others, nobody's going to be shooting at you in training. The reality is it's never going to be as high of pressure as you'd find in a combat situation. But that doesn't mean you can't add something. And that usually comes in the form of competition against others or time pressure. What you need to do is balance that desire to have time pressure for your competition where you're, you actually have to do something quickly, faster than the next guy, be, be, be more accurate than the next guy, and, and that helps you do things better. But the balance on that is that don't let the desire to push the limits as the game goes make you do bad things that are going to affect you in a defensive situation. So don't develop habits in a competition situation that are going to hurt you in a defensive situation. You need to be able to operate under pressure. Now, that sort of pressure isn't the sort of pressure you get when the ramp goes down on the landing craft and the German machine gun in the bunker opens up on you. But we can't do that. And we can't shoot at you for real. So the next best thing is getting into high pressure situations and competition does that. As a, as a tactical trainer, since I'm straddling that world, what I endeavor to do is, is put a fine filter between the competition and the tactical. And I take a good hard look at every competition technique and see whether it can be applied or modified to apply. And that's the, that is the procedure you need to use to see whether a competition or a competition technique or a competition procedure will assist you in your tactical deployment and your, your shot. Another important point here was talking about the importance of mobility that a lot of people want to weigh things down. And Russ used the example of Somalia where he went in after the Mogadishu incident. And they gave him these full suits of Kevlar and they gave him up armored Humvees and everything to slow down. Dudes were getting gassed after they moved hundred yards. The trucks were getting bogged down. And his argument was that everybody would have been far better served with better training to actually shoot at the targets they were aiming at effectively and return fire effectively. But the best training we could do, the best thing we can provide to a soldier as well as your own personal skill is to go practice effectively. You need range time, you need plenty of ammo to make mistakes and make good calls, and you need the conditions that blow that bullet all over the place. You need overcast, you need cold, you need hot, you need all those things repetitively so when you get behind the rifle, you can't, You don't have time to look at a data book, it is intuitive. Accuracy is the product of uniformity. It's something that Russ kept repeating over and over again, both in regards to his procedures as he's set up for a shot. He follows the exact same procedures every time as he was taught by a high school basketball coach, but the same thing applies to your equipment. You use your equipment the same way every time. So it's extremely important for any consistent endeavor where you want to have accuracy 
You need to do it the same way every time and be consistent. Accuracy is a product of uniformity. Watch, watch somebody, watch the same player at the free, free throw line in basketball or the same baseball player come to the plate. He'll, he has a certain routine that he follows religiously because accuracy is a product of, of uniformity in everything you do prior to the shot, during the preparation for the shot, and the shot, and the follow-through. One of my favorite lines out of this entire interview, and the one I titled this whole article with, is load your rifle with ammo and not ego. Or I think he flipped it around to saying they loaded their rifles with ego and not ammo. And by they, he's referring to these lifelong career high-speed military shooters who thought they were the top of their game across all the worlds that we do in the military. But when it came to showing up to an NRA high-power competition, they got destroyed. And that, that stings a little bit. I've been on that end where you think you're really good at something. You go to a match and then you just get stomped by these guys who really did know what they were doing. So the question is, are you going to take that loss and swallow your ego, come back and practice? Or are you going to say, no, that, that, that's not, that's just for gamers. That's not real world. That doesn't apply to me, you know, and then never show up again. The choice is yours. Because I was a big, bad infantryman or a big, bad Green Beret. And then all of a sudden I went to a competition and my ego wasn't bruised or damaged. It was sunk. And then I realized that I need to learn from these guys. Towards the back half of this interview, we started talking about getting involved in competition. And I thought there was a lot of really good points made with how to get started. I think a lot of people, me included, thought that getting started in something like PRS, which to be fair, I haven't actually done yet, but I've been kind of working my way there, but also showing up to NRA matches or really anything else. You know, it seems like it's a this this far off goal because the costs are going to be so high and you don't have the right training. You don't have the right equipment. You don't know what you're doing. And Russ's advice is easy enough. That's show up, <laughs> show up, take note of what people are doing. You don't even have to compete. Just show up and watch people and then ask questions. At the end of the day, go find the mass director and ask him if he's got any ideas and resources. And people who want you to be involved will help you. And my own personal experience from other matches I have been to is that if I am lacking some piece of equipment, almost anybody there is willing to share. Save maybe the rifle. <laughs> maybe you get a backup rifle, right? But but people want you to succeed. And if you happy wearing a uniform, like if you're active in the military or law enforcement, even doubly so. They want you to succeed. And beyond that, we also talked about rifle caliber. So we have this tendency to want to go after these high-speed, super trendy cartridges like 6.5 Creedmoor, or lately my new obsession is 6.5 PRC. But the truth is, the difference between those and a 308 and someone like my hands just isn't that big. And a 308, a 30 cal bullet, will do a lot of things really well. So the answer is, go to the range. Go to the range with the rifle, start shooting, start practicing, and show up and run it. And by the time you burn out that first barrel, you will have learned so much about yourself and your own performance and the rifle that when it's time to rebarrel it, then the caliber doesn't matter. Now you're competing at a different level and the caliber is gravy. The real change was with you. I know so many of these snipers that took these, you know, 2,000-mile shots that you see in all the gun magazines. 
I haven't met one of them that didn't say they walked their rounds into the target. You've got to set your ego aside and realize that everybody there that's shooting well was once you. There's no harm. There's no foul in it. And you'll find that most of the shooters there will give you more advice and training than you'll get in your whole career in the Army in just one day-long match. If you don't want to get involved in high-power rifle shooting, NRA, civilian marksmanship program, high-power rifle shooting, go to a match. Identify who the stud shooters are and then watch, film them, take notes, watch their pre-shot, their shot, and their follow-through uh, follow procedures. Watch how they approach the firing line. Watch every little thing. Take That was probably one of the biggest lessons I learned getting into competition. Everything is deliberately done. Nothing is left to random luck. When I asked about the most important accessories to get started, the interesting it was an interesting reply because Russ said that really the most important thing is that you have a gun that's good, but good enough to be reliable. It doesn't have to be super awesome. Just get started. The equipment has to be good in the sense that it has to function reliably. Don't think that you need to get the best, most accurate, super duper turbocharged gun. You don't. The three most important accessories you can do for yourself are actually not anything you can buy, but something you should do. Number one is have a maintenance log. In that maintenance log, keep track of every round you fired, every lot of ammunition, every time you clean, and then that way you know how that rifle is performing over time. What ammo corresponds to what happened with the rifle. Then when you want to get worked on the rifle, you have an entire history of what's gone on with it. Number two was a diary. And by diary does not mean a data book because that's number three. A diary is kind of your history about your shooting. How did you feel that day? Did you eat too much? Were you out of shape? Were you winded? Were you, were you sore from a workout? What was the weather doing? What happened on the day? It's, it's keeping track of your personal mental performance. The third item was a data book, which is a much more about a snapshot about how the shots went. Sketch the target. What was the wind? What was velocity? What rifle did you use? Keeping track of the mechanical things that are going on at the time of the shot. So you know when you face those conditions again in the future, that this is how the rifle performed. And also through the diary, you know how you performed under those kinds of conditions as well. In the interview, Russ gives the example of shooting a long range match where he was laying on the mat with his wind meter and his data cards and everything, trying to figure out the solution. And these targets don't appear for very long. And his spotter, who was a longtime precision shooter and sniper instructor, looked at him and said, what are you doing? And he goes, oh, I'm trying to calculate my, trying to calculate my, my shooting solution. And the guy looks at the wind and says, dial four left. And he got an X-ring. That is the voice of experience. That is where you need to be. And as Russ said, you need to run that calculator between your ears, not the one in your hand. My last note. Stop chasing the equipment arms race, as Russ put it. 
which, which again rings true with me. And I realize as a guy who runs a gun blog, we write a lot about equipment. That's kind of a, it's kind of a hypocritical thing to say, but it's so true. And, you know, twice in this interview, I brought up wind meters because for a long time, I've so wanted to buy a Kestrel because I think they're cool. And I think, oh, this would be really useful to have. And Russ's point of view is that a wind meter is a useful training tool, but it's a crutch when it comes to the actual moment. So how do you use that? Well, one way would actually be to go out and judge the conditions and pull up the wind meter and see where, how close were you. Look at the trees, look at the flags, look at the grass, see all the indicators that you, you know would affect wind and you guess and then verify your guess. Then in the future, the more you do this, the better you get at just calling the wind as it is. And again, you're running that calculator between your ears, not the one in your hand. Get out there and go shoot. Don't participate in the equipment arms race. Get something good enough. And by good enough, that means reliable enough to function for you. And the rest is your practice. All right, guys, that's going to do it for today's episode. I really hope you enjoyed this interview with Russ Miller. Uh, I know I learned a lot during it. Once again, if you want to get today's show, now let's go to everydaymarksman.co forward slash eight. And while you're there, if you want to support the channel and the website, go ahead and subscribe. I have a big fat green subscribe button at the bottom of the page or any pop-up. I just really want to get your email address. So that way I can send you emails over time, let you know when I have new articles coming out and get to know you, really. And don't forget to check out our social media channels. Uh, we are on Facebook at Everyday Marksman, Twitter, where you look me up my name at Matt Robertson. And I'm also on Instagram at Everyday Marksman, where I've been trying to be extra salty with my memes lately. So I look forward to talking to you guys later. All right, Matt out. Have a great week. I will see you next time.